In verse 13, it reads, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul ends this, this chapter with these three verses, and that will be the focus of our reflection this morning. I hope to come to you soon, and here he's writing, this is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that, uh, to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks thanks be to God. And now, Father, we, having heard your word, we ask that we... uh, Uh, You help us in these next few moments and see what great privilege and responsibility and what task that you give to us who are called by your name, who are united to your son, Jesus Christ, by faith, and that you do place us in, as we read, particular societies into churches. And what our responsibilities are. And Heavenly Father, we we live in a a culture and a world and a time that's highly individualistic. And so we ask that you would help us to see the timelessness of your word and to see our role as your people, as a corporate people, the one people of God that is your church. And the responsibilities that we have to that end. And so we pray in the next few moments you help us to understand these words and to apply them to our lives. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. I want to focus on the imagery in the middle of that passage. Look at verse 15. The end of verse 15. It's always been a fascinating thing for me when Paul, when the Apostle Paul, he writes about the church in many places all throughout his letters. But I love focusing on and meditating on these these interesting words, word pictures. The pillar and buttress of the truth. We're going to expand on this and dig into it a little bit more. But here, I think the Apostle Paul gives us a hint of the calling of the church. And the church has many callings in this world as the body of Christ in this world. The the Lord Jesus Christ is ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. But his, his body, the church, is here in the world, organized into particular societies, has, has uh, many callings to do in between the ages here, between, between his first coming, or between the advents here, between his first coming and his second coming. And one of the callings of the church is to uphold the truth. Uphold the truth. 
the calling of the church is to uphold the truth. Today, I want to look at three ways this passage calls us as the church to uphold the truth. First, it does so. The church upholds the truth in its conduct or its ethics. Verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon. Paul had a planned return to come back to the church at Ephesus that he had spent many, many years there. And he left Timothy there to bring things there to put it into order. And he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you, Timothy, may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. How one ought to behave. Another hint of this, the conduct of the church, is given also in the beginning of verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Godliness. It's a term that Paul uses quite frequently in these pastoral epistles, these pastoral letters. How a Christian lives supports the truth of God. Indeed, how a Christian lives supports the truth of God. How Christians live supports the truth of God. I want to explore the role that a holy and devout life has in upholding the truth. So the theme of, of godliness we looked at that word godliness. We've already encountered this before. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, "We Prayers and supplications and intercessions should be made for all, all people and for kings, those rulers in, uh, in high positions, the authorities over us that God has placed over, uh, over societies. <clears throat> and he said, we should pray for them that we may lead a peaceful and God, uh, quiet life, godly, and dignified in every way. This is the first time that this, this has occurred. Godliness. The Apostle Peter writes of a, a similar way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. When he says to that church, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Saying, believers, you were redeemed and rescued from from your dead sins and dead way of life. And he says, don't now be conformed to those past ways of your for former ignorance. But, he says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, for I am holy, for you shall be holy, for I am holy. Quoting from Leviticus. And if you, Peter resuming here, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Tells them that to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
And this gets a little bit behind the word that is used there for godliness. The, the Old Testament uh, equivalent of it would be, or at least the, the concept of it, would be what the Old Testament calls the fear of the Lord. The reverence and respect of the Lord that manifests itself in how you live. So the churches and individual Christians, but the church as well, the conduct of the church, its ethics helps, helps to uphold the truth of God. Here's the second one. The church upholds the truth of God by its conduct, but it also upholds the truth of God by its character, its character or its identity. One of my favorite studies to do is to look at all of the metaphors in the scripture for God and his relationship with his people, the church. I love looking and studying the metaphors of the church. They're, they're everywhere in the scripture. And I would love to get into all of those uh, this morning. But let me just kind of summarize some of them for you. I have a bunch here and I have scripture verses. If you'd like me to copy and send this to you, I'd be glad to do that. Um, but notice some of the, uh, the pictures and images that are used in the Bible for God, the triune God, and his relationship with his people. First, there is creator and creatures. It's a fundamental distinction. That's a very important distinction. To, to understand the distinction between creator and his creatures. He is the creator. We are his creatures. Here's another one. He is the head and we are his body. I alluded to this earlier about the church being the body of Christ. Christ being the head of the church. So head and body is a picture, an image of the relationship between Christ and his people, God and his people. Christ is also pictured as husband and the church is pictured as bride. Another one is of shepherd and sheep. Another is a builder or architect and the building, and in particular, the temple. We may get to that here in a moment. Another picture of the relationship is between masters and slaves. Another would be that he is king and we are his subjects or citizens. We are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And for this, let me, I, I, let's look at one passage then that kind of pictures this one. If you would turn to the left a little bit. Also a letter written to the Ephesians. So it has a connection here to 1 Timothy. In Ephesians chapter 2. Here's the picture of Christ as king and we as his citizens. And then let me go back to verse 11. We'll read all the way through verse 19. But let's just follow along from verse 11. Therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Okay, so then Gentiles in the flesh were called this by... Um, by the Jews, right? 
which is made in their flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Gentiles out of Christ, that's your description. And you were not only alienated from God, what does it say? You were alienated from the, the commonwealth and the nation of Israel. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one. Who's the both here? The commonwealth of Israel. You've made us both one. And have broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of, his, uh, of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, okay, so that's the buildup to here now in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Citizens, fellow citizens with the saints in the kingdom of Christ. So there's the, the king and kingdom portion. And then Paul immediately moves from that one to the next picture, the last one I want to focus on here. The first, that three, uh, the first of three that Paul uh, does, deals with specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. What's the character? Paul, Paul gives three metaphors here in this passage, and the first one is the household of God. So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The imagery is of a family, a big family, which is beautiful when you think of our triune God, who is God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the eternal Son of God came down, took, taking on human flesh, suffering and dying for us, being raised to life again, and that the Son has now been given a people, it's the Son of God the Father, and that all who are in Christ then, guess what? We're his brothers and sisters. We are brought into the family of God. He's adopted us into his family. We are his children. He gave us the right to be called children of God. And that is what we are. And so we are members of his, of his household. Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus himself is speaking of those who are his, that are his people, he says, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Think about that. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
refers to you who are in Christ and united to him. He says, that's my brother. And children of God the Father. Indeed, God even says in Hebrews that God is not ashamed to, to be called their God. And so here's what, here's what I say. I love this picture of the household of God to describe the particular societies of the local churches. One of the most important features of the local church is that it looks and it feels like a family. The greatest compliment that I could ever hear about Redeemer is like, I feel like, wow, this is like a family. Like you guys really love each other and you care for each other. It's like a, a big, gigantic family. And when I, when I hear that, I give thanks and praise to God. And I'm like, yes. Then, then in that sense, then we're fulfilling the character of the church. And thereby, according to this, is helping to uphold the truth of God, which is the household of God. That's the first, that's the first picture. Here's the second one. So household of God is the first one. Here's the second one church and you're like oh that's really profound um i i think we 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 often use the word church but seldom do i think we we really ponder and reflect on what is really meant here what says the church i know and it sounds really weird to put this in here what's the main identity of the church well it's a household and and it's a church Uh, okay You can't say, the, you can't define the word church by church. But So let's get into this a little bit more. Here's the, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. Ekklesia. And there's some debate about this, but it's connected to the word with uh, called out. You know, if you were to kind of break the word up as a compound, it could mean like called out. Um, but the, the idea and its usage was not just called out, but it was called out to be together. It was called out so that you could assemble together. And in its secular usage in ancient Greek and ancient Roman, uh, in the ancient Roman world, this was, um, this was a term for the assembly of the citizens to gather together in the city to do the city's business. So think about that. The word ecclesia is the, the assembly of, the, uh, of all of the citizens of a city to gather together to maybe determine some things, um, to, to just take care of the business in the city. And here in the New Testament, it's kind of seizing on that idea and that picture and is saying that's what the churches are. That's what the particular societies are. That's what they're, you're assembling together to do. You are actually citizens of the kingdom of Christ and you are called out and assembled together to do your kingdom's business. When we are saved and we're looking forward to that day when the wor- everything will be consummated at the end, we're looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation where there's no sickness or pain or tears or sadness or sorrow. Wouldn't that be amazing? We're looking forward to that inheritance that we're promised. That's what God's people are promised, and they get. They get to rule with Christ over all of creation. That's a future reality that's waiting for us. 
But when we gather together, we are actually doing that, that kingdom's business here on earth as a little outpost of the heavenly places here. That's what happens when we're gathering together. That's what happens when we're singing praises to our God, who he promises to be here among us, present by his spirit. That's why when we come and we take the Lord's Supper and we take it every week, we're taking these and we're reminded of the promise that this is Christ's body and that is his blood. By some magical incantation that I said that turns it into that? No. But by his spirit, he is present here. And then we, we take it in faith. We're communing and fellowshipping with him in the heavenly places. This really is an outpost that's connected to the heavenly, to the heavenly realm. It really is the kingdom of Christ inaugurated in the present in the church. And so we're citizens of that kingdom. That's, that's some of the background behind this term, church. We say church. Oh, there's a church. Oh, I passed another church. We passed a dozen churches on the way to get here. But, you know, churches everywhere. But church ecclesia these are outposts of the kingdom where we're gathering together in the name of our king and our heavenly father as a family to do to do his kingdom's business as citizens here and when we do that we're upholding the truth And so here's the third picture that he gives of the character of the church. The church upholds the truth by its character um, as a household, as a church. And then back to this that we began with, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, remember, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And if you remember, the, just kind of picture modern day Turkey, picture the far western side of modern day Turkey, kind of near the coast. Um, it was home to one of the uh, seven wonders of the church. Any homeschool kids here? Yeah? How many want to take a stab at some of the seven wonders of the world, the ancient world? I'm not asking you a math problem. <laughs> What's that? Ancient pyramids of Giza, right? Okay, that's one. The garden, hanging gardens of Babylon. Temple of Artemis. What's that? Great Wall of China? I'm not sure if that, is that one? It's a, uh, I have to what? Yeah, have to, there's a mausoleum, the, the, the roads, the, the Colossus of Rhodes, right? Okay, but Rosie hit it. Rosie hit it. The Temple of Artemis, the Temple of Artemis, which was where? Ephesus. It was in Ephesus. One of the seven wonders of the world was in the city that Paul helped found and was left Timothy there, the church there. And let me show you a picture of it. This is a model. Uh, I wish they wouldn't have planted these bushes there because that's like totally like, it looks tiny. Uh, let me give you some perspective in here. I've got some data here. Um, it was 450 feet long. How long is the football field? 300 feet. You add the end zones, it's 360, right? So this is longer than a football field. 
Think of, think of the big house in Michigan, right? This, this wouldn't fit on the infield. It's 450 feet long, 225 feet wide, or 69 meters wide, and 60 feet high. This is one of the seven wonders of the world. What do you notice about it? That's a lot of pillars. There's 100 columns there. I think there's over, uh, over 120 total, but just around the perimeter, there's multiple rows here. There's, see, there's another row here. There's like two rows along this, the outside. There's multiple rows on the insides going in. There's 100 columns there. The, the Ephesians were very, very proud of this. This has been around for, <clears throat> for hundreds of years before Christ, hundreds of years B.C., it was destroyed by arsonists in 356, the, the same year that uh, Alexander the Great was born. And then years later, it still hadn't been rebuilt. Alexander the Great offered to, re, to pay to rebuild it. And they said, no, no, we will do it. It's, and their quote was, it would be improper for one god to build a temple to another. And they rebuilt it later at their own expense. This marble columns, 60 feet high, over 100 of them. It, it's really, it's hard for me, to, when knowing this, it's hard to think that Paul's use of pillar here is not intentional. That he's not trying to bring to mind this massive structure. Basically, this is what you do as a church when you're gathering together. Not only are you the family of God, not only are you the household of God, not only are you the church, the citizens of another kingdom called out to assemble together to do the kingdom's business, you also are the pillar and buttress of the truth. The pillar and the buttress of the truth. One commentator says of this, now have you, how many times have you thought, you would think, well, isn't the church upheld by the truth? Isn't the church, aren't we like, aren't, isn't the church built upon the truth? Yes, that's true. But, but Paul here is reversing that image a little bit, too, to say, and there's, there's a sense in which the truth is upheld by the church, which, by the way, is why Paul says, hey, you really got to watch that false teaching. You have to deal with that false teaching because if a church is doing false teaching, the church, in Paul's mind, the church is the pillars and buttress of the truth if you are not then you would collapse and fall like this did you know in an earthquake or an arsonist one commentator put it this way this is perhaps the most significant phrase in all of the pastoral epistles it shows more clearly and more dramatically than anything else what is uh, what is at stake in the ephesian heresy and why it is essential that the church especially the church leaders conduct themselves properly not only is the Ephesian church a house of the living God, but one of its functions is to support and protect the proclamation of the gospel. This is why it is essential that church leaders be of a certain caliber and that both men and women conduct themselves appropriately. It is not the church that is being protected or supported, but the gospel that is being protected and supported by the church. Paul's flipping this image around to say, this is why this is so vital, that you cannot have false teaching 
in the church. A church that not only affirms, but tolerates ungodliness and false teaching is not functioning as a pillar and buttress of the truth. Here's John Stott. Here then is the double responsibility of the church vis-a-vis the truth. First, as its foundation is to hold, as its foundation, it is to hold it firm so that it does not collapse under the weight of false teaching. Secondly, as its pillar, it is to hold it high so that it is not hidden from the world. To hold the truth firm is the defense and confirmation of the gospel. To hold it high is the proclamation of the gospel. The church is called to do both of these ministries. Isn't that amazing? So as, as people would approach this and see, and this was kind of up on a hill, and they would see the peak of this thing well over uh, 60 feet high, and they would, Paul was saying, that's what the church does. That's what we, we do. We, we uphold the truth of the gospel. And I like what Stott says here, and we, sh- we raise it high so that the world can see. So that's the second. Here's the third and last of the ways in which the church upholds the truth, and that is by its confession. Now notice verse um, 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Okay, so not only does the church uphold it by its conduct, righteous living should be done by not only the leader of the church, but everyone in the church. Righteous living, godliness, godly life, fear of the Lord, reverence. Not only does it do it by but being the family of God, by being citizens of God, and by upholding the truth of the gospel, it, it does so by its confession and its message. It's confession. Um, anybody have a, the NIV translation there? So, so what does verse 16 say there? Great indeed, does it say? Yeah, so they, they, beyond all question. And what they're taking there is uh, that, that Greek word there is the word we would, have, we would use for to confess, to make a confession. So we think of like a creed or a confession of faith. And they're, they're, the, the NIV is kind of reading that as in this is a, a true and sure statement. What does it say? Beyond all doubt, right? Yeah, but it's actually the word to say the same. To confess, uh, you know, uh, the homologeo, it would be kind of the verb, the verb root idea here. To say the same, to confess. And then he begins, he follows that. So here's the mystery of godliness. So this godly living is derived actually from what you confess. What you confess is true. And he gives here, if you notice that it's indented, it, this is a hymn. This is probably a hymn fragment that they say. There's, there's other examples of this. You could think of uh, Philippians chapter 2, when Paul writes in Philippians uh, chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves. Who, notice it says there, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, etc. Uh, that, and many uh, scholars say, 
what it seems like what Paul is doing is actually taking a song or a hymn that the early church would sing that would sing to each other the truth about the, the mighty works of Christ and sing it. There's, there's other examples of that in the scripture. Um, here is, here's another one. So think of this as kind of like an ancient creed. Maybe it's just a portion of it or a fraction of it, but it's an ancient creed and perhaps it was something that they sung or recited together. And then let's listen to it. He, notice in the ESV, you see the little footnote there. Uh, the Greek word there is who, so it's very similar to, to Philippians chapter two. It also begins with the who. Who, that's referring to Christ. Who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Wish you had an early, you know, worship song or hymn from the first century. This is perhaps one, perhaps a line. All of them uh, begin, have the same Greek tense. All of them end with this, uh, with a dative noun, uh, with a couple of sections. All of them pretty much are alliterated. So it's, it, you could kind of recognize the poetic form of it here. And there's been several ways to try to understand this. Is this, uh, is this three couplets? There's six lines. Is there three couplets? Or are there two three-line stanzas? that are encompassing basically the life of Christ or the truth about his work. So there's a couple ways to look at it. Uh, three two-line standards would be based on the contrast between flesh and spirit. You know, he was manifested in the flesh, but taken up in the spirit. Uh, the second contrast would be angels and nations, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. And then the last pair of contrasts would be uh, earth and heaven, you know, to the world or taken up into glory. It seems as though that the ESV is looking at it as two three-line ones because you see each line is indented like this. And so it's two three-line stanzas, perhaps dealing with the first one, the incarnation and the resurrection and the glorification. And then the results in the second stanza, the results of his incarnation, resurrection, and glorification was that he's proclaimed and believed and then glorified. So let's look at this. Perhaps this is connected to Jesus' incarnation, the first one, manifested in the flesh. Celebrating the incarnation, which presupposes the pre-existence of Christ, right? It celebrates the, perhaps this is a reference to the resurrection, that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Perhaps you could see a connection here of those two things in Peter has a similar kind of creedal statement, 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. See similarity there? In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So perhaps that's connected by the vindicated in the spirit, or that's maybe what's connected to the third line, seen by angels. This is a most probably the most challenging one to understand really what, what is meant here. But maybe it's similar to the idea of 1 Peter chapter 3 that he pro announced his victory. The fourth one, the, the commission of Jesus Christ proclaimed among the nations. The spirit-empowered, Christ-centric message, which results in 
believed on in the world. It's not, not just a message for, for the Jews, but this was a message for all nations. And then lastly, perhaps dealing with Christ's ascension or his session being seated at the right hand of the Father and taken up into glory. That's just, I love the Apostle Paul. So you're giving us just like a little miniature church confession, a little creedal hymn. We're the pillar and buttress of the truth. We, we need godly living, and then we uphold the truth, and then let's put those two together. Here's the mystery of God, godliness, our confession, what we confess, what we say together. We recite together the truth of the gospel. We don't ever dare change, challenge, twist, or alter it. And in reading this, I couldn't help but think of the Apostles' Creed. And I thought, what better way to end, to close our time, before we come to take the Lord's Supper, than for us to confess the Apostles' Creed together. Because we, as the church, we uphold the truth of God. We do it by a righteous living. We do it by being a family. We do it by uh, standing fast on the truth of what God's word is. And we do it by our common confession. We say, this is what we believe. These are our marching orders. And then we leave from here. We've been, we've been assembled together. We've been called out from our various places to come and do the kingdom's business. And now we confess this together and we send us out to go and do this. Shall we do this together? I invite you to stand. Let's do the Apostles' Creed. And I would encourage you this week, if you have not gotten this memorized, to memorize this. We will say this together. And may we think about each line, the work of God for us. What we believe about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So let's say this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen and amen. Friends, we get to come to the Lord's Supper together. And let us be reminded that, that we are... <coughs> That the Lord gave us this meal to not only remember him, but that we would be nourished by the truth of the gospel, the work of God for us. To reconcile us to himself, to bring us into the kingdom. And the scriptures encourage us and remind us that, that we come confessing our sins and that we also receive with joy the promise that this gives. Similar to baptism, as surely as water washes away dirt and filth from the body, so our baptism is 
a picture for us to remind us as we have been washed and cleansed for our sins. Similarly, when we come to the Lord's table, that we are, our souls are nourished in the same way that this bread and this cup nourish and refresh our bodies. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you come to the table with joy and gratitude for the work of Christ and you feast on him and are nourished by him. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, there's no shame for you to remain at your seat. But if you confess your sins, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you are saved, then Christ invites you to come to his table. And so let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, you feed us, you fed us by your word, and now you feed us by the sacrament of this bread and this cup, uh, spiritually the body and blood of our Savior, and that we are reminded as we take this of the, of the gospel, the good news of his life and death and resurrection and coming again, and that we are part of the one holy small c Catholic church, the communion of saints, because our, fit, our sins are indeed forgiven. And so we come uh, receiving this with joy and gratitude, and it's in Christ's mighty name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen.